Welcome to Beyond the Seminar, where we sit down to have a conversation with a real-life scientist visiting the UC Davis Biomedical Engineering Department Seminar Series. I'm Randy Carney, an assistant professor here at UC Davis, and I'm here today with Dr. Liana LaRoe, an assistant professor of bioengineering at UC Berkeley. In her own words, to describe her research, Liana says that they use math to understand how our cells turn genes on and off. So welcome to the program, Liana. It's great to have you here in person at UC Davis. Thanks. It's really fun to be visiting. So your lab studies RNA. I think two years ago, the average person maybe heard about RNA in 10th grade biology and never thought about it ever again. And now because of the COVID pandemic, you know, RNA is a topic that's suddenly, you know, leading the nightly news. Um, so, you know, what is the importance of RNA with respect to the pandemic? Yeah, it's been really um, fascinating seeing how how relevant my work suddenly is. So so first of all, the, the coronavirus is an RNA virus. Its genome is actually a piece of RNA, and that encodes all of the genes that it needs to infect cells and do its thing. Um, so understanding how RNA is, is handled by cells is a big research area, and that's been incredibly valuable in the pandemic. But the other big um, place where RNA has, has come into things is RNA vaccines. So the pandemic brought us our very first mRNA vaccines. And I think this is a technology that's really going to revolutionize medicine. I was already excited about RNA vaccines before the pandemic. And some of my work relates pretty directly to how you design synthetic RNAs for therapeutic purposes. But now we're all getting messenger RNA injected into our arms and our cells translated into the proteins to train our immune system. Um, to attack a virus or any other invader. And so suddenly everyone's talking about that. It must feel strange. I mean, your research and training and, and background of what you started your lab on is directly applicable to the pandemic. So walk me through when you started to realize, you know, the pandemic is a thing and, oh, actually, we might be able to address some of these issues. Did it feel great? Or, yeah, or? it was It was a really interesting experience just watching the whole scientific community come together in a way to sort of solve this huge problem. It, it was very different than the way people often do science. And so that affected my lab in a few different ways. One was, yeah, since 2017 or so, we've been working on machine learning to understand like what makes a good RNA, what makes an RNA that's going to be translated into protein well. And so that was suddenly much more relevant. We had already been interested in how that was being used for RNA vaccines, but suddenly there was this real-world application, um, and I think it's helped me show the relevance of my work when I talk to people and helped show students why this is an exciting thing to work on. We actually also sort of pivoted in a new direction during the pandemic. I started a um, sequencing project to sequence the SARS-CoV-2 viruses out of the test samples at Berkeley, along with my co-lead. And so that was a totally new direction using the skills that my lab already had, but something that was almost more of a like a public service project than a research project in the way that we usually do things, where we were really focused on contributing data to the public effort to track COVID variants rather than conducting our own research projects. Wow, did you learn anything interesting when you're doing this research? Yeah, it was it was really uh, because Berkeley, much like Davis, set up its own in-house, COVID testing, and it was actually in my building, the Innovative Genomics Institute. And so we had access to all of the samples, and we could try to sequence the genomes of the virus from all of the positive samples rather than the very sparse sampling that was possible around the country and around most of the world. 
And so we were able to use that to see how patterns of outbreaks started and also stopped on campus to see how effective it was to really try to track down all the people who'd been exposed at some big social event, for instance. And we also were able to contribute to bigger efforts around California with the California Department of Public Health and also research projects at, at UCSF where we helped characterize this, this California variant that was, was a variant of concern before the really scary variants of concern came along. And mm. so it, it was definitely a, a huge international sort of everyone's doing their part to chip in and really, really rewarding work. Were you able to you know, pull students into those projects too? We got volunteers from several labs. So the, first of all, the testing center was originally staffed by grad student volunteers who are experts at QPCR. That's what they do every day. So they were doing QPCR for, for public health instead of for, for research. And I recruited a few volunteers who were postdocs in, in labs and grad students in labs around my building. Um, my own students got involved in a different aspect of COVID research, were helping make better CRISPR-based COVID diagnostics. And so... It was a sort of a, a challenge to try to keep the momentum going on our own research so that my students could finish their projects and graduate and do, you know, do the things that were really important for them, but also give people a chance to contribute to these sort of new directions that were suddenly very important. Your, your lab utilizes this technology of high throughput sequencing, which really has transformed our understanding of modern genomics and, and biology. Could you explain to us what is high-throughput sequencing and why it's so important? Yeah, totally. So the genes in our genome, um, you have the same genes in every cell in your body. And the way that cells accomplish different things, you know, different cells need to do different things, they accomplish that by copying some genes into RNA and making different numbers of copies of each gene depending on the circumstances and what's needed. And so the idea between behind high-throughput sequencing is that you can get a profile of what a, a sample of cells can do or what their sort of situation is by counting all of the messenger RNA copies from every gene. And we do that by capturing those, those RNAs physically and then sequencing them with uh, high-throughput sequencing using mostly Illumina sequencing machines. And that gives us a lot of little fragments of, of RNA sequence information that we can use to count up how much of each messenger RNA was present. So that core technique in genomics is now used by not just labs that directly study how RNA is made, but even all sorts of engineering applications, anyone who really wants to understand anything about what cells are able to do. This is an incredibly valuable technique. Is there anything really exciting on the forefront of that research or major challenges that, that remain that that you can identify? I'd say that right now, a big challenge that my lab is interested in is, is how to move from uh, bulk tissue characterization to single cell characterization. This has been a huge movement in the genomics field where people can actually recover enough RNA from one individual tiny cell and sequence just the RNA from that cell to figure out the identity of that cell. And then people can do this with hundreds or thousands of cells at a time to get really fine-grained insight into, let's say, how a stem cell differentiates into a neuron. So that method of single-cell RNA sequencing is really popular suddenly. It's, it's a huge technological advance. But the computational methods to interpret the data need to be really clever because sometimes you've got 
a very small amount of information from each individual cell, and it can be hard to draw really good conclusions about what's happening because the data can be sort of messy. So one of the things we've been working on is trying to develop methods that let people find interesting changes between different types of cells without getting misled by the messiness of the data. So you started your lab a couple of years ago at, at, at Berkeley Bioengineering. Can you walk us through a couple of the you know years or months before that or what that process was like for you? Yeah, I was actually a fellow, so an independent PI, sort of like a super postdoc in a way, at Berkeley. Um, and I had my own little research group, just one bay of a lab and a little grant and um, two graduate students who had somehow decided to bet on me as a not yet faculty member, really brilliant, brave students who, who just made my research take off by, by trusting me and joining my lab early on. And so um, that was drawing to a, conclu a conclusion. It was time to apply for faculty jobs. And so I didn't necessarily expect to stay at Berkeley. I applied all over the country. And actually, I'm from the Boston area, so part of me would have been excited to move back there. But I also love Berkeley. I, I love the environment there, the, the collaborative, interdisciplinary way that people work there. And so after doing the whole national tour of, of, of uh, faculty job interviews, which is a pretty grueling process, I was really excited that in the end, I just moved one building over. How did it feel to have your first independent lab? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, it's, it's hard, right? Like even going from, I had this sort of independent-ish lab where I was mostly using equipment from other labs for a few years, and then getting a chance to expand into my own space, buy a lot of equipment, recruit a lot more people, uh, it felt like, wow, we can really take off now. We have all these ideas and not enough people to do them. And suddenly we have the people and the resources to really jump into all of these questions that I've been thinking about. But um, now we can do something about it. So what are some of the challenges that, that you face when you start your own lab? I'd say that getting things going is slow. So whether that's buying equipment, even before the pandemic, I was lucky that I started my lab in 2019. So the people who started during the pandemic had a really hard time, both because they were so isolated and because everything is backordered. You can't buy a centrifuge. You can't buy, you can't buy plastic tubes. Everything is is hard to get right now. And so, but in my case, luckily, I was able to start a year before that. And so, um, it still took a while to to you know figure out how do I place orders, how do I get quotes. I hate getting quotes for equipment. Luckily. I hired a really fantastic lab technician who took charge of all of that, got me a bunch of equipment, and actually just transitioned to being a PhD student in my lab. So he gets to finish the research project that he started. So you're from Boston? Well, I'm actually from Northern Connecticut, but oh. my family is from outside Boston. So I sort of think of my night I went there for college. So I think of myself as a Bostonian <laughs> inherently. Brothers and sisters? I have two brothers. They're both younger than me. Okay, so older sister. <laughs> yep, that's right. So, you know, your lab is at the forefront of research technologies doing, I would say, pretty hardcore math and, and science. Um, you know, when did you first get interested in science? I think I was, I was really interested as long as I remember. I would say even maybe more on the math side. Um, my dad used to do sort of math brain teasers with me when I was a little kid. Um, my school system was very small and, and not, um, not the strongest in some sense, but it had the advantage just of being a very small public school, but there were so few of us in a way that we could we could sort of get individual attention and do what we wanted. And so I, I had a lot of freedom to do things my way. And um, so I always really liked math um, and, and science and pure science, mostly, I would say, in a, in a very sort of 
understand how the universe works sort of way. And then when I got to college at MIT, I was suddenly surrounded, first of all, by like-minded people, which was an amazing experience, but second, by, by people who also applied that in new directions. And I had not expected to get as interested in computer science as I did when I was an undergrad. But in the end, I started as a math major. Um, genome biology was just taking off, and I got more and more interested in biology. And so by the end, I added a double major in biology. And that was really unexpectedly perfect preparation for what I ended up doing for the rest of my career. It was the biology coursework that got you so interested? Um, it was a combination. I mean, the, the coursework and then just um, having some friends who worked in labs and talked about things. I, I ended up uh, doing a summer research project with um, Ron Weiss, was a, a grad student at the time, uh, working with, with Tom Knight, who's a sort of crazy genius um, who was working at MIT at the time. And, and I just sort of ended up as the undergrad summer student helping them uh, do, you know, build these little blinking bacteria. They were trying to make oscillating circuits out of glowing fluorescent or uh, luminescent proteins and bacteria and just getting to help with that crazy new idea, which turned out to be the beginning of a whole field of synthetic biology was definitely one of those crazy right place at the right time moments. So then you went on to do your PhD in molecular biology at, at Berkeley. How did that transition come about? I had worked for a few years after I graduated, uh, so I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to do sort of genomics. I wanted to understand how information in the genome determined what happens, which is basically what I still do. And so I got a research job working for Chris Burge, who was actually a fellow, not even yet a faculty member at MIT. He was their first sort of purely computational biologist in the biology department. And so I was actually mostly the lab sysadmin. I maintained eight different types of eunuchs. Um, but around the edges, I also really transitioned, actually more of my time in the end, went to doing uh, genomics research. And, and it was, I loved it. It was great. And it went really well. And so it really confirmed that this was exactly what I wanted to be doing. And, and I applied to PhD programs. There were very few computational biology PhD programs at the time. I knew that was what I wanted to do. But I'd always been primarily motivated by the biology questions. And so um, Berkeley's molecular biology department had a lot of people doing this very new genomics research at the time, and it really ended up being the perfect fit. Did, did you come into undergrad or, or grad school even knowing you wanted to go on the academic track, or is that something that emerged? I would say that I wanted to, but I didn't really know anything about what that meant. It's more that I had this image in my head of sort of being a scientist, from reading, you know, biographies of Marie Curie, which is not very realistic of what it is to be a scientist now. And I didn't really know anything about that world. Uh, so I was lucky to have a, a lot of friends around me who had a little bit more context for, for what it was to, to follow an academic career path, you know, what, what it took to get there. And so uh, as I spent, you know, as I got further along in undergrad, I, I think I got a better sense of what it would take. Although I would say that as an undergrad, I had a thousand hobbies and was in a thousand groups and was always doing something other than going to class. So it sort of was interesting watching how my focus got sharper and sharper on this one thing that I wanted to do and how it all sort of fell into place by the end. What was the topic of research at, uh, at Berkeley during your PhD? I worked on understanding what alternative splicing of genes accomplished. So the human genome only has about 25,000 genes. And that was actually a big surprise for the Genome Project. People thought we must have more because we're so much more complicated than nematode worms, for instance. 
Turns out that's not actually what defines complexity, but one source of complexity is that each of those genes in the human genome can, well, most of those genes in the human genome can be spliced into two different RNA versions. So the same, you know, the RNA is transcribed from the genome and then it's processed by splicing to remove different pieces in different contexts. And so I was first trying to just catalog how much of that happened, but then we stumbled into this really interesting realization that some of these different copies, rather than making two different proteins, which is what people assumed, it's like two slightly different versions of the protein from one gene, we found a whole set where one version made a protein and the other version just got destroyed. And it was like my, my advisor described it as like hooking a printer to a shredder. Why would the cell bother transcribing this whole long RNA, processing it only to degrade it intentionally in a, in a controlled way? And we realized that it was a way that a cell could get rid of extra RNA after it's already made the decision to transcribe it. But if it is beneficial to get rid of some of it, this is one way that cells can do that. And it turns out, even though that sounds pretty weird, it's actually associated with the most conserved parts of the human genome. So the, the, the sequences of the genome that are identical between the human and mouse, a lot of them are regulatory elements that control this weird, unproductive splicing process. So afterwards, you moved to Stanford to work in the lab of, of Pat Brown, um, a very famous scientist who invented the DNA microarray and started the Public Library of Science journals, the PLOS journals. Um, more recently, uh, started Impossible Foods, uh, the impo known for their Impossible Burgers, which as a vegetarian is very appreciated. Um, what was it like to work in in a lab with with such a you know a luminary? Yeah, it was a fascinating place to work. Pat is one of these visionaries who's always got three different ideas going at once, and. Um, just incredibly insightful and incredibly bold. And his lab reflected that. It was a group of people who were all pretty independent. It was it was a very loose, you know, sort of go in your own direction sort of place. Um, and a lot of a lot of really good science happening. But also as I was there, this transition away from the science and to, you know, saving the world from global warming, which was his goal in starting Impossible Foods. And he had previously put a lot of energy into starting, as you said, the Public Library of Science, which was a, a response to the difficulty of access to scientific literature through for-profit journals. And so it seems like, you know, every decade he he came up with some new big thing in totally different directions that was going to change the world. Mental health is a common issue for, for graduate students um, that's getting more and more talked about. Are there ways that you address this issue in, in your own lab? This has been really on my mind a lot during the pandemic, especially because it's something I've struggled with myself. And I think the pandemic was so isolating for so many people. Um, and and I think that isolation can compound the thing that's already the hardest about grad school, which is this sense that you're you're in it alone. I mean, you're not in it alone. You have a whole team of people with you, but ultimately you're producing your own new results, your own new science. And of course, my job as an advisor is to direct people to, to, you know, help their projects reach really interesting new conclusions and, and make sure people aren't, aren't really alone in, in what they're trying to do. But there is this part of a PhD that requires sort of, I guess, like looking inside yourself and, and finding some, some science there. Um, it's hard to describe that. And it can be 
it can be challenging. And I know that for me as a grad student, I think many of us, our, our third year in particular seemed hard because you've passed your qualifying exam and suddenly you know what you're going to do. You have this plan for your thesis and now you have to do it. And even though it looked so clear cut when you wrote that thesis proposal, there's just this this vast void there between a plan and, and a result. Um, the vast void doesn't actually last as long as it feels like it will. But um, so I, I'm very aware of how hard that experience can be, even when from an outside view, it's it's going really well and everyone's doing really excellent work. And so especially during the pandemic, I, I've been trying and, you know, I don't know how well I succeed, but trying to stay connected to sort of what direction people's projects are going in and how can I keep the lab connected to each other so that they can get some of that interaction that we used to have being in person that for a whole year and a half they they had to try to get through Zoom hangouts and Zoom lab meetings and the occasional gathering in a park six feet apart with masks on. Do you have a daily routine? What does a typical morning look like for you? I'm not a morning person. <laughs> so during the pandemic, my my office was my dining room table and my cat was my office mate. And it was actually sort of fun. Um, my day, like many PIs, my day is mostly filled with with one-on-one -on -one meetings with my students and occasionally group meetings, um, teaching. Um, and so I developed this this routine that was sort of pleasant uh, it, from my from my dining room, but it's really nice being back in my office where I can um, recover some of the spontaneous interactions that used to happen. And that's that's been really wonderful to start having those again. So what about hobbies? Is there something people would be surprised to know about you? Um, well, as I mentioned, when I was in college, I had a lot of hobbies. I have a lot of hobbies now. Um, I've had to scale them back because being a PI takes a lot of work. Um, I do Irish step dance as a, hmm. as exercise mostly. It's super fun. It's incredibly aerobic exercise. So so that's something I've been able to keep doing. I occasionally compete, but not so much anymore. Um the other big um, focus, I would say, of, of my life over the last, you know, since since grad school is um, I've been involved in an in a art collective that makes large industrial art um, started out aimed at things like the Burning Man Festival, um, places where you can do really weird things and create really weird and interesting experiences for people. And, and so it's um, been a lot of fun to work with them and help bring some of these ideas to life. So what's next for you uh, lab-wise? Is there anything, um, you know, large goals that, that you have to set in the next however many years? I would say moving faster and, 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 and accomplishing more is sort of how it always feels, especially coming out of the pandemic where we accomplished a lot. And I'm so proud of everyone in my lab, but definitely we have this feeling of just things are a little bit, it's like, it's like you're swimming through quicksand sometimes. And, and so watching everyone come back and be, excited about their science has been really great. And I'd say that the direction my lab is moving in is partly in how we can apply some of our work, some of this basic research that we've done. How can we apply this to real world problems, real world situations, whether that's therapeutic RNAs or, or um, machine learning models that let us predict the impact of mutations on disease or, you know, getting it a little bit closer to the end goal of applying this knowledge. So where can people find you if they'd like to connect? They can find me on Twitter, where I post mostly science-related things. <laughs> um, my Twitter handle is at Liana Fay. 
or you know other places on the internet um, or walking around the Berkeley campus enjoying the very small amount of nature that we've somehow managed to pack into <laughs> an urban center. The last question I always ask is, um, maybe you can leave us with a suggestion. Um, what's the last greatest thing that you watched or read? Oh my gosh, I just, so this is a science thing, which is not necessarily the last thing I would have read, but I just watched this wonderful video yesterday from the iBiology um, program. And it was an interview with the scientists um, Messelson and Stahl, who did this just incredibly elegant experiment many, many decades ago that essentially proved that Watson and Crick were right about how DNA worked. It was this beautiful experiment. And um, they're still alive. They're quite old. And so the iBiology producers got them together, and, and uh, they, one of them visited the other at his house in, in rural Oregon. And they just hung out and reminisced and talked about just the pure joy of doing science and discovering things. And that, that moment when you're a grad student living in a house with a bunch of other grad students and all sorts of crazy people coming over for dinner and you have these great ideas and you can go do those great ideas. And of course, they were in the lucky position to be able to discover something huge about how life works. But I think that that joy of doing science, I think that's something that hopefully we all get to experience. Oh, great. I'll link it below the, the podcast. Um, so, Dr. LaRoe, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you.